the Janes understood that invisibility could be their friend. And as long as no one paid attention to them, they could get away with running an abortion service, basically under the noses of the Chicago Police Department and the Chicago mob and the Catholic Church. That was Tia Lesson, co-director of the 2023 DuPont award-winning documentary, The Janes. The film profiles a group of women who created an underground network providing low-cost, illegal abortions to women in pre-Roe Chicago. Welcome to another episode of On Assignment. My name is Abby Wright. I am the executive director of the Professional Prizes Program here at Columbia Journalism School. And I am joined in the booth today, as always, by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen, director of the DuPont Columbia Awards and the prize prize program writ large. Hello, Lisa. <laughs> Hi, Abby. It's been a busy month for us here at the DuPonts. After hours and hours and hours of listening and watching, our jurors have officially selected the 30 finalists of the 2024 DuPont Awards, which you'll be sure to hear about in the coming days. Yes. So in honor of our 30 new finalists, we decided to feature one of our 2023 DuPont winners in the podcast today. Tia Lesson and Emma Pildes, the directors of the HBO documentary The Janes. Back in April, we were lucky enough to host a screening of the film, and we invited them to come up and speak with journalist Jessica Bruder to hear more about the process of making this film for our students here at the Journalism School. The Janes is really an important and certainly timely documentary, given how much has changed over the past year. The film actually premiered on HBO in June of 2022, which was the same month the Dobbs decision was announced the decision which officially struck down Roe v. Wade. Yes. So as you listen, um, we're going to give you some context about some of the references the directors make to some of the characters in the film. First off, though, you're going to hear how these directors see themselves as activists as much as filmmakers, which is something we talk about a lot in the journalism school and in our office. Right, Lisa? Yeah, certainly. And in the jury selection process. Yes, yes. So this line between activism and journalism. What do you think? How would you describe that balance in the film? Well, I think the filmmakers are pretty transparent about their point of view. And their lens as documentarians is clearly sympathetic to and supportive of abortion rights. Right. In telling these stories of the activists and the women who made use of their services. They do say in this conversation that, you know, they were prepared to include any bad that they found along with the good as they were researching the genes, even if it angered the genes themselves. And I was really glad that they included the point of view of an old school cop who was pursuing them and who was right out of central casting. It really added something. Agreed. They also interviewed many members of the Janes and talk about them in this conversation, including a woman named Judith, who is related to one of the directors. And you'll also hear them talk in length about a character named Mike. And his role with the Janes was not what you would have expected. So you'll hear more about him. Right. Another thing, another topic that's kind of chilling is the septic abortion ward. This was a dedicated section of the Cook County Hospital in Chicago reserved for treating women who had undergone illegal abortion procedures resulting in physical injury and infections, sometimes fatal infections. Another thing they talk about is the fact that the Chicago mob 
actually, you know, was responsible for mob abortions. It's pretty self-explanatory, but prior to Roe v. Wade and legalized abortions, the Chicago mob saw abortions as a great business opportunity. Mm. And finally, uh, at the screening, Tia Lesson was wearing a cast on her foot because she had just gotten ankle surgery, and that is referenced towards the end of this conversation. Okay, so now that everyone is up to speed, let's get to it. We're going to start this episode with a short excerpt from the film that really sets up the premise, and then we'll jump into an edited conversation with the filmmakers Emma Pildes and Tia Lesson, moderated by journalist and J-School professor Jessica Bruder. We were very aware of the fact that um, women were suffering in a variety of ways because of abortion being against the law. Women did awful things out of fear and desperation. We knew that some would be injured, some would die. Many people around them, including children that they already had, would suffer. So we thought, we can be of use. You need an abortion, we'll help you. Call this number and ask for Jane. I am a tremendous fan of both of your work, and I just want to congratulate you on, on bringing this together at uh, such an unfortunately auspicious moment <laughs> in the history of America. Um, but if we can start at the beginning a little bit, Emma, um, this, project, this project has a particularly interesting origin story. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about growing up being aware of the Janes and what that so was So like. my father is the radical lawyer in the film. <laughs> <laughs> These lunatics raised me. Um, yeah, so it's always been lore in my family growing up, this, this story. Um, Judith was his first wife and my brother's, my half-brother's mom. Uh, Daniel, um, who was the little baby that she nursed after the bust, um, is also a producer on this film. Um, so we always knew about this. We always had access, Daniel a little bit more than me, uh, to these women. Um, and when Trump got into office, um, things got scary in a new way in a lot of in a lot of realms. But um, reproductive rights was one of them, and it felt sort of like a responsibility that if we had access to these women, and they had some established trust in us enough to sit in front of our cameras, that it was you know that it was our responsibility to leverage all of the relationships we have in our, you know in our careers to 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 try to make this film, so. How did you end up deciding to approach Tia to team up on this, create the dream team? Yeah, well, Tia and I had known each other in the business for, for years, and she had such a remarkable filmmaking history, but also an activist background, and that really meant a lot to me, and I knew it would mean a lot to these women. Um, so if we were gonna go outside of the family, it had to be, someone that um, we knew they would trust and that we trusted. And so I approached Tia to do that. And she said, yes, don't talk to anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like Tia was part of the broader activist family. So uh, what I was about to ask what your reaction was. And uh, Emma kind of grabbed it. But can you? I mean, how soon can we start? Was my reaction. I mean, look, it, it, 
not only seemed like a good story in the moment, it was, she approached me around the time that Brett Kavanaugh was being confirmed for the Supreme Court, and um, I was walking around like just full of rage, and I felt like it was a good way to harness some of that. The extreme right had been gunning for Roe for a very long time, and that it was, you know, time was up soon. Um, but it also just was a damn good story. You know, it was dramatic. It was this sort of cat and mouse game with the Chicago police at a time when Chicago was the epicenter of so much radical uh, movement work. And um, these were just sort of ordinary women turned outlaws. It just felt like it had this recipe for intrigue and, and that we could do more than just tell a historical film, that we could make it riveting, that we could make it engaging, maybe even funny. You know, how many people here imagined that they would laugh, you know, when they walked in the room seeing a movie about abortion? But we felt like it needed to, you know, reflect the, the high spirits of these women um, who have kind of a playful side. I mean, we had no idea that the film would premiere on HBO the very same month that Roe was overturned. Um, we couldn't have predicted that. Um, but we imagined that it would be relevant no, no matter what. I was a medical student at Cook County Hospital. Women would use objects to try to disrupt the pregnancy, which perforated the uterus, perforated the bladder, perforated the intestines. We would see 15 to 20 people a day. They either went to the operating room or they went up to the septic abortion ward, and the septic abortion ward was full every day. One girl, I remember the doctor saying, there's nothing more we can do for her. Here's this beautiful young girl and nobody there and she's dying. She never woke up. I still see her face. I called the morgue every week that I was on that ward because somebody had died. Um, some of the activists, if, if I read my, if I did my homework correctly, some of the activists in your film hadn't spoken about their work in the Janes publicly for maybe 50 years, if ever. So even though you had that family in, was it, did you find any reluctance? Was it difficult to get them to speak? And opening this up to either of you or both? Yeah, it was all of the above. Some of them were primed and ready and happy to sit down and had their whole, you know, their kids knew about the work they had done, you know, they weren't um, shrouded, in, shrouded in secrecy in any way around it. Um, some of them were out to their family, but were f fearful about, you know, being on camera. Um, you know, they lived through the, the 50 subsequent years after Roe, and they were violent ones. Um, and so there was some fear there. They wanted to be sure that we were on the up and up and that we were gonna tell the story, you know, and do right by this. So it was a mixed bag. You know, I mean, one of the reasons we made this film was, you know, there is so much um, stigma around this issue still. And there is so much internalized shame around this still. And, um, that's one of the reasons we wanted to make this film. I don't think these women were 
were shameful of it, but there was stigma that they felt, and they weren't all leaping at the chance to sit um, in front of the camera. So, and I, I would just add that they didn't all value their own voices. You know, they were raised in the fifties and sixties, and they, you know, even as radical, you know, and as they were, they discounted their own voices and their own experiences enough to say what I'd say on camera wouldn't be good enough. And so we had to get past that too, you know, which is typical of, you know, one gender. Yeah. That's that's heartbreaking too a bit in the context of the film. I'm just thinking back to the moment they were raided and the cops were saying, where are the doctors? And do you know, because there are all these women. So, and just also looking at how they got sidelined in other movements for civil rights and, uh, you know, just even, you know, they were there with the Black Panthers. They were there doing all of the things, but it was the male radicals who often had the microphone. So well, and but they used that to their power. You yes. know, they used they they subverted that, and they understood that invisibility could could be their friend. And um, as long as no one paid attention to them, they could get away with um, you know running an abortion service um, basically under the noses of of the Chicago Police Department and the Chicago mob and the Catholic Church. One woman, she left a message on Jane. She said, when you call me back, don't be alarmed if they answer Chicago Police Department, because that is where I work, and I'm giving you my work number. I remember Jody saying, we have a policewoman. Who wants the policewoman? And all of us just sat there and I said, I'll take her. I guess, you know, they also use their white privilege to some degree. You know, mo uh, except for Marie and a couple others, you know, it, it was a white, mostly middle class group, but they felt that they could use that to serve the needs of, of the community that they were part of. So um, I think that they, they turned those things on their heads a little bit and and they relegated the men in their movement, the husbands, the lawyers, to the helper roles. So the men were helpful, they were making coffee. You know, they were doing the things in the Janes that those women had been doing, you know, for SDS and for the civil rights movement and, and, and that was kind of delicious to us to, to be able to show that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just thinking about the other men in the film too, I'm thinking of Dr. Howard from the Septic Abortion Ward. I'm thinking of Chicago policeman Ted O'Connor, and of course that dude Mike, uh, who performed abortions for the Janes and then taught them how to DIY it. When I started, it was in the days of the doctor, the doctor who was not a doctor. You know, I never gave it any thought whether he was an MD or not until we discovered that he wasn't. He was such a good abortionist, and I knew that from the jump. I kind of knew he wasn't a doctor. I knew that he was involved with other uh, illegal pursuits. Once I said, you know, 
Sometimes I've thought about becoming a safe cracker. How would I go about doing that? And he gave me some advice. <laughs> Maybe they thought I was a doctor. I have no idea what they thought. I'm not sure if that ever came up. Maybe it did, but I didn't. I never told anybody I was a doctor. But your code name was? Dr. Kaplan. Um, in terms of how you widen the aperture beyond even that kaleidoscopic cast of Jane's, bringing all these other secondary characters in, I thought just really made it a much richer film. So I wanted to know, how did you find those guys? And did you chase other secondary characters that you couldn't get onto the screen or didn't end up there? What was that Should like? I start and then you'll go. Um, I think, yeah, it was important for us to broaden you know, the lens because these women came out of somewhere. You know, they didn't just, you know, they weren't just individuals making this happen. They were in, in, informed by the civil rights movement. They were informed by the student movement, the anti-war movement. And, um, and they were part of this whole ecosystem in the city of Chicago and this country. And, and drawing on these other characters and telling those stories, you know, was important to us. Um, it also just makes for a more interesting story when you have some of these voices collide and others, as you say, you know, discordant notes. You know, we wanted to show the septic abortion ward. We wanted to show the clergy consultation service. You know, these were, um, this was all happening in Chicago and it, and it showed, you know, the stakes, you know, the community that the Janes were part of, but also the stakes of how rough, you know, how difficult, how dangerous um, it could be for a person who was self-inducing or turning to um, the mob or to back alley, you know, to get their abortion care. Yeah, and as far as finding them, I mean, they each they have their own, you know, extraordinary story. Um, Mike stayed in touch with uh, Jody's two daughters. Jody's two, Jody, who's passed away, <clears throat> her two daughters, unsurprisingly, became the first two female firefighters in Chicago. And, you know, Mike was a fixture in their household when they were growing up. They were all smoking dope together and hanging out on the weekends. And not the kids. Not the kids. Um, we're too busy packing the pills. <laughs> right. um, and, and so they have a lot of affection for Mike and sort of kept tabs on him, which I'm sure wasn't the easiest thing to do over the years. Um, and they, you know, they really wanted this film to be made. They gave us a lot of support, um, a lot of ephemera you know, the cards, the doctor's list, all that was, you know, from, from Jody's, from a suitcase in, in their basement. Um, so, and one of the things that they brought to us was Mike, for better or worse. Um, I mean, he's a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-career character that we were just so thrilled to have. I mean, he embodies the complexities of this issue, you know. He was the best-case scenario, and he was great because he wasn't killing women but he's so rough around the edges and not who, perhaps the face you want to see when you're going in to get a medical procedure. But they all have stories like that. I mean, one of the most remarkable is Dory, um, who opens the film. She got the mob abortion and then later got an abortion with Jane. Um, 
And you know, we were searching high and low for women that came through the service um, because the only records we had were these index cards. We weren't really supposed to have them, which is why we blurred them on screen. And so we had to find a way to find these women. And um, eventually we put an ad in the Chicago Reader. We went old school with it. And Dory answered the ad. And we did a pre-interview with her and she told us about how much Jane changed her life, shifted her worldview. She found a, f a feminist worldview for the first time all of this stuff and as we were getting off the phone sh she said yeah and I, you know I know what I'm talking about because I also got a, a mob abortion and was about to hang up and we we're like hang on hang on hang on hang on I had no other options I wanted it over with and I didn't care how it was done I was that desperate an acquaintance said here's a phone number and it was the mob they had to talk in code. They said, do you want a Cadillac, a Chevrolet, or a Rolls Royce? Chevy was the cheapest, $500. Um, a Cadillac was something like $750. And if you wanted the Rolls Royce, and we're talking about the 60s here, it was $1,000. That's what the mob charged for an abortion. I went to the room that I was assigned and I sat on the bed and I waited. I was petrified. They spoke all of three sentences to me the entire time. Where's the money? Lie back and do as I tell you. Get in the bathroom. That was it. I was just laying there trying to, you know, get my breath and I knew I was bleeding and all of a sudden they were gone. They just left. So we got incredibly lucky with her because we had in one person someone who, we could, who could A, B the two experiences and really, um, you know, bookend that and, and explain from within herself and in her soul um, why this was so important, what was so different about this care, so. Well, I was going to ask you how you got the cards because I was so amazed just to see them on screen and was hoping they hadn't all been eaten. Um, that is one of the moments of humor there, eating the cards. You know, there were 11,000 cards, so they burned a lot of them, but I think um, some they hung on to, and my guess is that um, we know that there was a study done by Cook County Hospital um, after the Janes close to see what their rate of complication was for their procedures and I believe that the cards were part of that statistical study um, you know and then they just got ended up in the suitcase so when we saw them it felt like one way you know to have a proxy for these 11,000 women that we could not speak to at my very first Jane meeting the three by five index cards were being passed around and the information on those cards was the name and contact info, medical details, how far they were in the pregnancy, if there were any known complication possibilities. People were so trusting. 
they gave you their name, phone number, you're coming for an illegal abortion. And you're, you know, I have two kids, I'm eight weeks along, here's where I live, here's my first and last name. <laughs> Gosh, the cards. You just, you know, your heart would be going out to them. They weren't just cards. They, you knew there were people, and I knew there were women like me. And we also understood, you know, there were some ethical issues. We didn't want to reveal, we felt we, sh we shouldn't even know the names, much less our audience. And we certainly didn't feel um, as tempted as it was, we couldn't contact them you know, given the information. So we also knew that the Janes would be pissed at us when they saw the cards, because those were essentially medical records. And yet, when we were interviewing these women and they put the cards in their hands, it was this extraordinary way, even in a sit-down interview, to get them emotional, like deeply connected to this moment in their lives. And to remember these faces and names, and you know, it was palpable. You could feel them. It really grounded them. And I think they're good with how we treated these cards. But you know, that's just what happens with every subject. You have to do right by them, and you also have to tell an accurate story. And frankly, if we had found information about the Janes that wasn't flattering, we would have had to have shared it. And you know, they, they, there was the death of this person, and we knew that we had to put that in the film, and it didn't reflect well on the Janes. They knew it, um, and they took it on, and they talked about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. How did they feel about it when it came out? What kind of reaction did you get? The, the film, in its entirety. In its entirety. The, the subjects of the film, from the Janes to Mike to. Um, I think the women were very happy. I mean, I'm sure they had some notes. They mercifully didn't share them with us. Um, but in general, I think they were really, really happy. And, you know, we, we premiered at Sundance in, in January of 2020, and um, things were getting acutely scary. I mean, the window was starting to close. People were starting to wake up to the possibility of losing Roe, and so, I think they were mostly just joyful that this seemed like something that people were responding to and finding value in and that, you know, these are women that, people that, you know, want to be of use in the world. That's why they did this work in the 60s. And so I think to be of use, again, having told this story was was a very a joyous thing for them and you know aside from the you know the seriousness of all of that i think it's been really fun for them they've gotten to see each other they've done a lot of q and a's um, you know they're rock stars when they're in a room you know they're and it's a joy for us to see them get recognition for something that they weren't able to get recognition for at the time so are any of them involved with the movement today? Um, well, yes. I mean, there are things we know about, there are things we don't know about, but the thing I can say is that um, they are inspiring a new generation, I think. Um, you know, there are a lot of groups that call themselves the Janes. There are a lot of groups that, um, that I think Hey Jane is hey the Jane group. Hey Jane is a telemedicine abortion telemedicine service. Abortion service. Yeah. 
um, that you know there's sort of a direct lineage, and 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 they really wanted to have this intergenerational dialogue between the people who you know haven't experienced a world without Roe until now, and the people that you know lived through it and have some wisdom and lived experience to share. Absolutely. Um, when we look back at the Janes and what they accomplished in a moment where, uh, that thankfully in many ways we can't go back to, right? Because we didn't have the internet and we didn't have abortion pills. And in terms of the fact that things can't get pre-roll, like literally can't in that way. I mean. I mean, yes and no, but like, there are some laws that are much more punitive, much more restrictive in Oklahoma and Texas than there were, you know, at the time pre-Roe. In Idaho, as you well know, like you, um, people can be prosecuted for felonies for transporting minors across the border without parental consent for the purpose of getting an abortion. You know, I think back to, I just think about the scale of the devastation right now and just the fact that the tools people have at least go beyond a teneculum, do you know what I mean? And a cervical dilator in terms yeah, of just the I mean, scale I think it's, of reaction. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's just that there's, it, it, unfortunately, human nature, it's going to, right? So yes, it would be nice had they had cell phones, but there's also, um, you know, surveillance in a new way. Oh, yeah. Right? And and there's the abortion pill now. Yeah. You know, as 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 important as this technology is, as medication abortion is, in terms of liberating people to self-manage their own abortions and take, you know, in their own homes, in the privacy of their own homes, it, it's more dangerous to have a medication abortion at 15 and 16 and 17 weeks. And um, I just worry that, you know, we think that this is a magic bullet when, you know, it, we still need to have clinical abortions. We still need, and there's some people who still want to be able to go into a clinic and get it done in one day by a medical professional. They don't want to have to, you know, maybe do this over the course of many days and well, by themselves. Well, that's the other point about it. It's about living in a country that believes that a woman can make these choices for themselves. I mean, that's, that's the, th the other thing that's at stake here is that the, the paternalism of this Supreme Court, um, the fact that they are you know, making decisions that the FDA should be making. I mean, th these are very scary things. And the fact that they aren't carrying out the will of the people. 75% of this country believes in a woman's right to choose. So why are we here? I think it's going to have profound effects for many generations in a lot of different ways. You know, what is giving you hope right now, if, if anything is giving you hope right now? Not the hopeful one, so. <laughs> I switch off. <laughs> I mean, I walk around like, I mean, I think we, we've shown this film in a lot of places where abortion is banned. And see, being in communities where people continue to, you know, do good work at great cost and some sacrifice, I mean, that makes me relieved and hopeful um, that there's, you know, people aren't going to stand down. Um, I feel like normalizing this conversation about abortion care makes me hopeful that, that we hope this film can engage people to tell their own stories. And hopefully the more we can talk about this, it just becomes like having, you know, ankle surgery or, you know, 
I mean, it just becomes part of the medical care system, and it's and it's taken the stigmas sort of stripped from it. On my days that I'm hopeful, that's what gives me hope. Yeah, and talk about normalizing it. I mean, one in four women probably hasn't had ankle surgery, and yet, when you look at abortion, it's everybody. You know, it's our neighbors, it's our families, it's our friends. It's, it's ubiquitous. It's sort of in line with what Tia is saying. You know, being able to have these panels and Q and A discussions and have people stand up and tell their own stories has been really m moving for us. Really terribly sad at points. Um, you know, women standing up and saying that they were raised by a mother who didn't have a mother because their grandmother died in a back alley abortion. Those are the generational effects that I'm talking about. But, um, but, and to have people come up to us and say, I had an abortion and I've never told anybody that before. That makes me hopeful. That makes me feel like this film is doing something. Um, you know, that we are contributing um, as activists, not just filmmakers, um, to affect change. It's a very small moving of the needle, but that's been hopeful for me to see that if you just say, it's, it's okay to say these things out loud, that people are ready to do it, so. We were really ordinary women, and we were trying to save women's lives. We wanted every woman who contacted us to be the, the hero of her own story. I mean, we felt such agency and we felt so empowered by saying we're gonna do this. So we wanted to share that, that sense of personal power with women who weren't supposed to feel a whole lot of powerfulness in their own lives. Wow, that was a great conversation. I learned a ton. Special thank you to Jessica Bruder for moderating the conversation with the directors of The Janes. Jessica herself is currently writing a book about abortion rights. If you haven't seen it yet, we really encourage you to watch The Janes. I think it's still available to stream on HBO, right? Yeah, it is, and we're going to include a link on our webpage. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We are looking forward to announcing our 2024 DuPont finalists in the coming week, 30 of them. So be on the lookout for the list at DuPont.org. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of On Assignment, featuring DuPont winners and other outstanding journalists who come to see us at the Journalism School. This episode has been brought to you by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and the Columbia Journalism School. It was produced and engineered by recent Journalism School grad Alyssa Castles, who is now our podcast and digital content producer. Thank you, Alyssa. Until next time.